Hello again, and welcome to Contemplative Episcopalian, a podcast of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. We are a Christian faith community located in downtown Beloit, Wisconsin. I am Father T.J. Humphrey. For this episode, before we get into it, I wanted to share, I normally, for these episodes, if you've been following along for some time, these episodes begin with the intro. It's like the same thing I repeat every single week. Uh, I'd probably sound bored doing it, saying the same thing every single week. But uh, and then we always have the 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 postlude part too, just sharing information about how people can get involved in our church. Well, our church is still closed due the, to the pandemic, and so we've taken off the postlude part just because church does doesn't look the same um, as it did, um, and and also just the intro stuff. Uh, it's just a. It's very repetitive, and I just kind of guess that perhaps it's a part that you all fast forward through. <laughs> and so uh, I've been just kind of leaving it off. But I'm providing an intro uh, this week simply because there's uh, two sermons called Blasphemy this week. I got quite sick uh, and needed somebody to preach for me and fill in for me. Meg Trim did a wonderful job, one of our parishioners and uh, an aspirant for holy orders. Hopefully we'll become a postulant soon. And so they filled in for me and did a wonderful job. But I had written an entire sermon uh, before I got sick, and it wasn't quite polished because I got sick in the middle of the writing process. But I thought, you know, I wrote it, might as well share it, since I did get a chance to preach it on a Sunday morning. Might as well share it through another avenue, since I put some work into it. And so uh, here it is. So the, the sermon that was preached in the context of St. Paul's was Meg Trim's sermon, and in the podcast list, it's called Blasphemy. <laughs> this is it's the same text that I, I, I'm offering today, a sermon, a reflection on the same text, uh, a sermon that I would have preached had I been well enough to do so. And I'm just going to put it under the name of Blasphemy too. So they're both reflecting on the same passage. And if you're wondering why there's two sermons about the same topic, uh, that's why. And so, yeah, two, two different angles. Mine is much longer because it's less refined. <laughs> I didn't edit it nearly as thoroughly as I normally do because, again... Uh, I was unwell. So thank you again for listening and for following along. If you're interested in some of other ways to plug, to get connected to our church these days, we have a YouTube channel, St. Paul's Episcopal Beloit. Uh, All of the sermons and services are up uh, on on YouTube. And we also live stream on St. Paul's Facebook page if you're interested in actually seeing faces (laughs) Um, and putting faces together with the voices that you've been hearing as you've been following along. But anyways, this intro has taken long enough. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay safe. God bless. A reading from Mark. The crowd came together again, so much so that Jesus and his disciples could not even eat. And when Jesus' family heard about it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying, he's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called to them, and Jesus spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up that strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. Here ends the reading. Whenever it comes to scripture passages that induce real existential panic within the minds of good church folk everywhere, (laughs) our, our gospel reading for today is probably pretty high up on that list. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, when Jesus starts off by saying that all sorts of blasphemies will be forgiven, we tend to go, whew, as we wipe the stress sweat from our brow. But when he concludes by saying that all will be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, well, then we start to feel the heat a bit. In the passage, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, says that there is such a thing as unpardonable sin that human beings can be truly guilty of committing eternal sin. (laughs) People read this passage and tend to go, well, crap, like, have I done this at some point in my life? And I've known people who desperately jog their memories trying to recall a time when they may have unintentionally committed this egregious thing against the Holy Spirit. But, my friends, as with everything in the Bible, things are not so cut and dry. Context matters. And the history that sets the foundation for that context matters. We approach the Bible today, and we tend to only think about how certain passages come across to us. But an equally important question, though, is this. What would these words have actually meant to those people who first heard them. How would Jesus' hearers have understood blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And who would they have thought these words were being directed against? Now, to get at Jesus' meaning and intention, we need to go back in time quite a ways. There's a famous story about the prophet Isaiah, and I'm sure many of you know it. In this story, Isaiah is swept up in a vision of God's heavenly throne. Now, it's very likely that Isaiah was a high priest and that his vision occurred on the Day of Atonement, which was the one day a year where the high priest could actually enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And I say that he was probably a high priest because his vision is filled with inner temple imagery and the ritualism of the Day of Atonement. 
Isaiah was swept up in this phenomenal vision of God on the throne and the seraphim surrounding the throne. But if you know the story, can you remember? What is Isaiah's reaction to everything that he sees? It's fear and a deep sense of his own sin. He cries out, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. Now, it's, it's not as though Isaiah is saying that he and his people cuss like sailors or anything of that nature. He's not freaking out because he suddenly realized he had a potty mouth. No, no unclean lips implies false teaching. In this vision, Isaiah suddenly realized that what he and his people had believed and taught about God was dead wrong. But what was this false teaching? And what was it about the sight of God on the throne that caused Isaiah to automatically know that he and his people had gotten it all wrong? Well, we need to go back in time a little bit further, travel back a little bit further back. Just one generation before Isaiah's time, Israel's king, Josiah, he had led what he labeled as an initiative of reform for the temple. And the Old Testament kind of actually recognizes him as a hero. But Josiah definitely took the focal point of Israel's religion and moved it in what we would today call a more conservative or even fundamentalist direction. He removed the sacred objects from the Holy of Holies, objects like Aaron's staff and the holy oil that was used to anoint the high priest with the Holy Spirit. And King Josiah destroyed shrines all over the land. Now his claim was that both the temple and these shrines had been corrupted by pagan influences, that the people were worshiping false gods. But it's clear from the biblical and archaeological evidence that the people weren't worshiping false gods at all. Rather, they were merely venerating different aspects of the multifaceted God they called Yahweh. In essence, King Josiah had destroyed the mystical spirituality at the heart and center of the temple tradition, and he had traded it all out for law-based religion. Moses and the law became the prominent focus for the first time in Israel's history. And the importance of the temple with its rituals and its priests, all of that faded into the background. It was still there, but it faded. It lost its importance. Josiah had, in effect, kicked the Holy Spirit out of the temple. And religion under his reign shifted from spirituality to essentially ethics. And to further justify his actions, Josiah claimed that he had rediscovered a long-lost book of Moses in the temple. And it was this that inspired all of his legalistic reforms. But it's very clear, looking back on that time in history, though, that Josiah didn't recover any ancient books of Moses, but that he actually had a new book created 
and planted in the temple. In other words, he made the whole thing up just to fuel his project. Now, we can't say for certain why Josiah did what he did, but I don't think it would be too hard to surmise a guess. He was a king, a politician after all, a king who moved the people away from the direct experience of God, God who happens to be the highest power in the universe. And Josiah put the focus primarily on law and order in his kingdom. It's the same thing politicians have been doing all down through the ages. What does God want from you? To be a good little citizen. Well, how can you be a good little citizen, you ask? By obeying the rules. And gee golly, isn't it convenient that God's rules and the nation's rules are one and the same? Moving the people away from the mysticism of the temple was a sure way of safeguarding Josiah's own fascism. Because mystics can't help but to disturb the imperfect political systems of this world because they've been given visions of a perfected world. But perhaps Josiah's greatest influence, though, was the creation of a dangerous idea. The idea that God cannot be seen. And Josiah was so influential in this movement that later editors were also influenced by it. And they put phrases in the Bible like, no person can see God's face and live. Now you may be wondering about this weird side tangent about Josiah, but I'm going to connect it all back right now. Connecting all of this back to Isaiah, does anyone else see a problem with this line of thought? that no person can see God's face and live. Does anyone else see why Isaiah might have felt like he and his people had embraced a false teaching? Josiah established a religion that taught that human beings could not see God. But Isaiah had seen God on the throne, and he lived to talk about it. It became immediately clear to Isaiah, that Josiah and his followers, they had not reformed Israel's religion, but actually they had departed from it. And Isaiah was seeing the error of his people's ways and following suit. He was beginning to see how he and his culture had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Isaiah wasn't the only person during this time to have this epiphany. I mean, Ezekiel actually saw the Holy Spirit leaving the temple in his vision because of the condition of Israel. One of the conclusions that many people came to during this time was that Israel's priests, they had lost their vision. They had lost their wisdom because they had lost the Holy Spirit. Josiah's reforms had kicked her out of the Holy of Holies, and Israel's clergy had become blind guides as a result. Unfortunately, the prophets of this time, they were not able to steer the ship entirely back in the right direction. And as a result, two religious traditions arose in Israel, the religion of the reformers and the religion of the temple mystics who rejected 
the reforms. Now, why is all of this backstory, this Old Testament stuff, important? Here's why. Because this historical tension between these two traditions comes out in full force in in nearly every single interaction that Jesus has with the scribes and the Pharisees in the Gospels. And one of the reasons why people latched onto Jesus so heartily was not because he was teaching something new or innovative. Rather, they gravitated towards him because they knew he was reestablishing the tradition that had been abandoned by Israel's leadership centuries before. In every gospel story, the scribes and the Pharisees are the continuation of Josiah's reform movement. Jesus, on the other hand, and his disciples embody the return of the tradition of temple mysticism. Jesus embodies the restoration of the Holy Spirit to the land. Think of Pentecost, for example. And he made her presence felt with all of the many healings he was performing. He healed the land just like the high priest would do every year on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the mystical reality of the Holy of Holies, and many, like Isaiah, had profound visions of the divine presence while in there. Then they would come out and sprinkle sacrificial blood, blood which represented the Lord's own life. They would sprinkle it all over the temple. And the temple itself was believed to be a microcosm of the whole universe. And the blood was believed to be God's healing presence, sprinkled all throughout the world. In essence, on the Day of Atonement, the priest was believed to be literally forgiving the people's sins and healing the land. So what is one of the first things that Jesus does in his ministry? He offers forgiveness, and he heals. But as we see in our gospel reading for today, the scribes arrived on Jesus' doorstep and began accusing him of being demon-possessed after they've seen one too many healings. We have to see Jesus' response to them, his words about unforgivable sin and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, with all of this backstory in mind, Isaiah, Josiah, all of it. The scribes and the Pharisees and the tradition they represented had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Their predecessors kicked her out of the temple, calling her a false god. And now these scribes were calling her presence in Jesus demonic. When Jesus talked about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, he was not condemning individual sinners who, on occasion, get agitated by life's unfairness and curse God because of it. No, Jesus was condemning the power system that had completely corrupted an entire nation's understanding of God. Jesus was condemning a power system that was doing its damnedest to keep people out of the direct presence of God. Jesus was condemning a power system that had invented ideas about God in order to protect and to promote the selfish political and economic ambitions 
of those who benefited from that system the most. This is what Jesus' words meant back then. But what do they mean today? Sadly, very sadly, Jesus' words may be more relevant to today's cultural crisis than they were during his own time. The fact that so many people today read Jesus' words and instantly apply these words to themselves and not to the debased religious and political institutions that taught them to do this, it only proves the point. And those politicians who make up things about God or who wave borrowed Bibles around in front of holy places for photo ops in order to get votes or to secure power, they are guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Those priests and ministers who abuse others in the name of their God, calling that which is divine demonic and that which is demonic divine, they are the ones who are guilty of eternal sin. Those religious institutions that have become so venomous and hypocritical that people feel the desperate need to flee from them in order to salvage the remnants of their faith and recover their mental and emotional health. Those institutions will not escape Jesus' promised judgment. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Perhaps Jesus' teaching here can be best summed up by one modern theologian's words. The Christian of the future will be a mystic or they will not exist at all. The church that does not wake up to Isaiah's epiphany does not deserve to take up any more space in this world, for the world has suffered more than enough under its oppressive weight. And churches that are doctrinally questionable but spiritually authentic will be forgiven their shortcomings according to Jesus. But churches that have a lot of ideas about God but know nothing of the experience of God will ultimately be done away with because the Christian of the future will be a mystic or they won't exist at all. My friends, don't worry about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. This passage is not about you. And besides, your worry about it proves your innocence. But worry instead. Worry instead that our country and countless churches in our country are led by people who clearly never worry in the slightest about such things. Do not worry about committing eternal sin. Worry instead that we have far too many Josiahs today and not enough Isaiahs leading us.